Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us and the humans behind the positions in our public debates. Each episode, I speak to someone involved in some way in public conversations from poets to politicians, from comedians to archbishops, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In this week's episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Professor Linda Woodhead. Linda is Professor of Sociology in uh, the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University. And this year, she's been in California at a fellowship at Stanford. From 2007 to 2012, she was the director of an enormous funding program, 12 million pound research program looking at religion and belief, which culminated in the Westminster faith debates. In this episode, you'll hear us reflecting on her sacred values about being real, about her childhood. You'll hear her reflecting on her difficult relationship with the Church of England and her decision to walk away from it. And we talked a little bit about why it's so difficult to talk about God in public. I hope you enjoy listening. Linda, I'm going to ask you the big meaty question at the start that I ask everyone, and it's additionally intimidating asking you, as someone who studied spirituality and meaning making and belonging and religion and all the related subjects, you probably know three or four definitions of the sacred just off pat. So I'm not even going to try mine. Uh, so let's just kind of fudge it. What is your initial reaction to the question? What are your sacred values? Be real. Be who you are. Find out who you are. Be like that. Be honest, don't hide behind labels and institutions and do it in the name of those things. Um, don't make your way in life by demeaning other people. Learn that in kindergarten and stick to it. Um, just try and do your work as well as you can to do good things. Um, have close friends who share the journey with you and that you love and respect and learn stuff. I love learning stuff. Become an expert in something. There's really no greater pleasure than that, whatever it might be. I'd love to know uh, why you think, particularly that very first value, be real, be yourself. Do you, have there been experiences in your life where that's been under pressure or you've seen that in others? No need to kind of name names, but why do you think that's at the top of your mind when someone asks about a sacred value? I just think it's really hard. I think it's taken me a long time to be real or even a little bit real. You know, it's so much easier to be who you're told to be by your parents and by your church and and then behave in the name of your institution because you just don't have to be as responsible. Taking responsibility is really hard. It's much easier to say, well, I have to do this because my role is leading me to do this. No, you've got to do it yourself. And what helped you learn how to do that? Oh, just messing up, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like we learn the most way things. To learn lessons. Yeah. Um, and seeing, you know, the temptation. I, I think getting disillusioned with institutions and people acting in their name and doing bad things in their name, uh, even though they're good people. Um, and just liking people who are honest and can admit their faults and who have got a sense of humour and don't pretend to be something they're not. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood uh, so take me back to young Linda running around with pigtails or whatever it was. Tell me a bit about what that was like. And if, if there are any particular religious or political or philosophical ideas that you feel were in the air that helped you become the woman you are today. Oh, well, I grew up in very, very rural Somerset. Um, 
quite close to Glastonbury, which is probably an influence. So um, I grew up in a very old-fashioned village, you know, village school, village church, all the rest of it. Uh, still very Christian without ever thinking about it, just because the culture was, not because my parents were. But down the road was this alternative culture, so I was really aware of those kind of 60s countercultural values and that kind of mix of stuff, I think. I think that probably got me really interested in religion and spirituality, always. I've always been interested in those questions. Yeah. And uh, was it a straight line to go on to study? It was theology, wasn't it? I studied, I studied theology and religious studies at Cambridge in the uh, early 80s. Um, yeah, I just wanted, I always thought, what's, now I want to know, what's the big questions really interested me? What's true? How should we live our lives? Is there a God? And I thought, I don't want to just do Western culture. So studying religion will give you a much bigger global spread. And it did. It was a fantastic, wide ranging degree. And had you, like, had you been able to talk about that stuff on the dinner table with your family at school? Or was it really only when you got to university that that kind of bubbling interest could take full shape? Absolutely not with my family. We talked about anything but, you know, much more trivial things. So that was obviously a frustration. Uh, Yeah, I guess adolescent kind of talking about all that, probably quite a lot with friends at school. Um, But uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say university allowed it to happen in in the way that I hoped it would. You know, you always hope that your formal university education, anyway, is going to let you do all those exciting things. And of course, it's never quite like that, but... Tell me more about that. You felt like the the structures of the teaching, or what was uh, what was limiting it for you? Well, I mean, professors, and I am one now, uh, aren't necessarily in search of the truth and how to live a good life. They're probably in search of a good pension and uh, how to uh, avoid the colleague that they don't like down the corridor. So one is inevitably disillusioned as an ideal idealistic teenager who thinks you're going to get the answer to the meaning of life from every yeah. tutor you encounter yeah, the university <laughs> every lecture that is, you go to yeah that kind of almost a sense of a kind of community of wisdom gets slightly yes it, i thought it would be like you know socratic dialogues every day and it wasn't quite like that but I'm, I mean, it was pretty there was space to do some of that good um this is a, a slightly Slightly old question, but I have to confess something, which is as I was researching, I realised that you went to state primary and state secondary school. Is that right? I'm comp- I'm, I have a very exclusive education. I'm a comprehensive educator. There are very few of us who yeah. are educated in comprehensive schools. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm I, very well, proud of that. I have this weird thing. And one of the themes that we go around and around in this podcast is kind of tribalisms and the way that we have instinctive affinity with people who we feel like we're like us, which can be both positive and negative force. And I felt in myself this immediate sense of, oh, I assumed that Linda went to private school because she's so so confident and so accomplished and that's what I associate but she she went to comprehensive school like me and 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 felt that immediate tribal affinity thing which is totally arbitrary um in me so I wanted to kind of name that and then say what was that experience like of then going from that to Cambridge in the early 80s was there a bit of a culture shock or did you feel like you fit in fairly easily uh, it was it was a huge culture shock um like most people of that generation, my parents hadn't been to university. I came from a very, very poor background. So, like you say, we never had debates like that. I only ever heard them on Radio 4. So, um, I remember going to my first theology seminar and I thought, I don't understand a word anyone is saying here. So, I'm going to have to really 
quickly <laughs> get up to speed. I was terrified. I was. I mean, I can remember shaking, waiting for my supervisions with Brian Hebblethwaite, literally shaking with terror. Yeah, it was very intimidating. I never felt. I never. I never had that imposter syndrome. I always thought, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be, but I've got a lot of work to do to find out what the hell's going on. <laughs> and uh, this is really hard for academics. It's hard for everyone, I think, hard for British people in general, but particularly hard for academics is to talk personally and uh, about their own relationship with faith, particularly if it's the thing that you study, because I feel there's still a culture in academia. And we talked about it really early on when we first met, this sense that the academy still doesn't take religion seriously. Mm. And when it does, mm. this attempt to kind of objectively get objective distance is sometimes that sometimes it's done really well and rigorously and sometimes it's mm. done just as a that there's problems around it so to frame all of that mm. uh what you said you're going to kind of were christian in a a way that was just sort of a set of cultural assumptions and then you went to study theology at cambridge which i know for lots of my friends who came from christian families and then studied at theology at cambridge was a real crisis point and some of them are still religious believers and some of them aren't um, and then going on as you, as you're always interacting in this analyst mode with religion. What is your own kind of personal relationship with Christianity or other faith or non-religion now? Hmm. Well, I mean, one exception at Cambridge was my was my director of studies, who was Don Cupid. So he genuinely did have an inquiring mind in the best sense. You know, he interrogated absolutely everything that was happening, um, and that. That was very inspiring that someone could apply their intelligence, not just to you know, the grand theoretical problems, but to everything and be genuinely interested in stuff and ask the big questions. So that was a, that was a model, even if I didn't agree with his answers. He was a model of uh, what I thought an academic should be. Um, and then I did go on to um, teach theology. My first post was in a theological college, an Anglican college, teaching doctrine and ethics. And um, that was really the beginning of the end. You know, once I tried to be a professional theologian and go to theology conferences and so on, which were incredibly male-dominated at the time and really not a space for free inquiry about God and other issues. Um, and I just realised I wouldn't really have a place where I could be myself in those circles. So I became more interested in um, uh being a social scientist, because then you really can talk to people about what they believe and you can actually go much deeper in those conversations. So strangely, I I, I do more theology by doing <laughs> the study of religion than I could by doing theology. Uh, I'm going to push you once and then if it still, still doesn't feel right, that's fine. But you haven't actually said much about your own personal um, sense of where you fit or not in the church or otherwise. Oh, so I was I was Church of England. I mean, born and raised, born, bred, raised, you know, um, taken for granted. And I taught in a Church of England college. I was absolutely dyed in the wool. I still am Church of England, bred in the bone. But I became so, over the years, I became more and more upset mm. with how the church behaved. Mm. I was going to come to this later, but perhaps there's a natural bridge, which is um, one of the many, many books you've written was called uh, That Was the Church That Was with Andrew Brown um, from The Guardian a few years ago, which was um, a provocation, a kind of history, a extraordinary book, really, um, which ruffled a lot of feathers. With a bit of distance on it, tell me about the journey that led up to you wanting to write that book and your reflections since of kind of what is the effect that it's had. So, I, I mean, it took decades to get to the point where I could write that book and have enough distance from the institution to write that book. Just in terms of kind of emotional 
engagement yeah, with Yeah, I him. think it was the end. I think it was the end of my own personal. No, not the end. Of course, not the end. But you know, a very important ending point in my struggle with the Church of England as an institution. So going from wanting to be part of it, wanting to give my life to it in absolutely every way, and just finding we don't actually want you which is the experience a lot of educated women had of the Church of England who would have liked to have a role, either ordained or non-ordained, and just having the door slammed in your face over and over again. Uh, and, then, and then wondering why and talking to other people about it and thinking with my sociological hat on about what does this say about the church and what's going on and how does the institution run itself and why has it got to this? So it was, it was a really good for me, you know, it was a good way of processing all those things. I'm sure my own anger and sadness comes through in that book. And it is, it's a, it's a very sad book, really. It's mm. a kind of end of a love story. It all went wrong. <laughs> Did you, was it cathartic having written a lot of academic books to be able to write a book where you're allowed to let your feelings show? Yes, it was. I mean, it was funny because I wrote it with Andrew Brown, who um, spent his life as, 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 um, a journalist, as a religious correspondent on The Independent and then The Guardian, mm. studying religion in this country in the Church of England and being there, you know, being there in the Lambeth conferences and in the in the meetings and seeing it all unfold. And he he walked away before, quite a long time before me. Anyway, the funny thing is that, you know, everyone said, oh, you know, it's so kind of spiky and difficult and that must have been Andrew because Linda's not like that. Actually, I think that was probably me because Andrew was much calmer about the Church of England by, you were like, by the time he wrote it. Now. <laughs> yes, yeah. right. He probably had more distance from it. Yeah. One of the things I've asked a lot of guests who've said things in public that others didn't want to hear or been things in public that other people didn't want to hear, you know, lots of my, the people that I've um, interviewed who are, who are um, from minorities or of one side or the other experienced a lot of abuse, whether online or um, in various different forms. So after it came out, did you get much kind of kickback and criticism and how did you process that? I mean, very, very, very strong reactions. There was, there was a lovely time, quite, quite a while, when on Amazon the reviews were either five star or zero. There was absolutely nothing in between, you know. Um, so people either loved or hated it, and they just, they just had the battle themselves in the comments. We didn't have to do anything, but it really was that kind of book. It really divided people. They either had, they'd either experienced something similar and and could could feel those criticisms or. They just wouldn't accept it, and they were defending the Church of England. So that was great. I wanted, I mean, it, it, you know, things that provoke people. If it doesn't provoke strong feelings either way, it's not really saying anything, I think. So. And I did the thing with you that I've done with a lot of academics, which is sort of assume that you've always naturally and temperamentally been someone with a thick enough skin to want to um, provoke or engage in debate or be able to take robust criticism. You've clearly got to that place, but it sounds like it's been quite hard won in places, particularly about things that are kind of personally um, related to you. So do you feel now that actually you quite enjoy an argument, you quite enjoy a bit of a scrap, or are there still bits of you that, you know, that are easily bruised or you'd, you'd retreat from? I think the thing that I found really difficult always was being labelled by other Christians and other Anglicans as a liberal uh, and as not a Christian at all. And social media made that really common move. And being labelled that by the archbishops and by, you know, people on the archbishops' council and so on in public 
I found that really hard to deal with. I think telling someone that they're not a Christian when they are is a really below the belt thing to do. And I found it surprisingly hard to deal with. It was like some fundamental bit of my identity was being poked away at. And for the representatives of the institution to do that. I found that terrible. Yeah. And I found it terrible that they were so fast and loose with the truth as well. You know, senior clergy and people would try and discredit me um, on social media and constantly try and undermine your reputation. Oh, she's not really an academic or there's, you know, the book was libelous and all these, all this smear campaign. I mean, I'm sure it was an orchestrated campaign to try and discredit the book. And at the time, I found that really hard, but it helped. It helped me see what the institution was like and actually reinforce my conclusions. And as I've become much more distanced from it through that process, it, it doesn't hurt me now because I don't, I don't let it get, I don't, you know, I'm not part of it. I'm not still trying to, to be embraced by it. Once I still wanted to belong, then it hurt. But now I know that I can't. It doesn't hurt in the same way. I'm so sorry that you, you went through actually, that. You registered me on Twitter, Elizabeth, when it was the I news. I know, and now I feel terribly guilty. because the blame should yeah. accrue to you. Yeah, it should. You did ask me, but I said yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, your most recent research, which has been in, in non-religion and in... Um, forms of kind of meaning and belonging for those who call themselves re religious nuns. Um, and uh, I think one of the fault lines that we have in public conversations is a kind of generational gap is between those who think forms of meaning and belonging identity should look one way and then a whole generation coming through for whom they're just working with quite a different set of assumptions. And um, I'd love to, you've written brilliantly about it in various ways. I'd love to just hear a little bit about what you found about the ways that um, particularly millennials and younger millennials are kind of forming communities of meaning and belonging and, and how it looks different from earlier generations. I've been doing work recently with post-millennials, so people born from the mid-90s through to the, through the noughties. What do we call those? Z? Are they Z? Yes, Z, post-millennial, iGen. They're, right. you know, they're, they're my students at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes me feel so old. I know. We are very old and I'm even older. But I love this generation. I think they're a really inspiring generation. I've loved doing research with them. Um, uh, and they, yeah, they, they, they are very clear about their identities. I mean, they can tell you about their sexuality, their gender, their masculinity, their femininity, their all that very clear, clear about their ethnic identities, um, clear about the groups they belong to. But it's not the apotheosis of individualism and narcissism, like the critics say, because they find themselves through finding others like them and through that kind of dialogue. And of course, the internet has made that so much easier. You can develop a really fine-grained identities and belongings because you, even if you're in a little village like me these days, you can find the people who are a bit like you. And you, know, you find them by, by lurking and watching and listening and seeing if it's a conversation that you feel comfortable in. So there's so much more scope for that. And uh, um, it's helped produce, it's not the only thing that has, but you know, a generation that actually are very emotionally articulate and put really high value on being real where we started and um, are deeply suspicious of authority and institutions, very, very disillusioned with all mm. those things. Mm. And um, we've talked at various points with various people about identity politics and I kind of continue to sort of scratch my head about it as a phenomenon because there are those who will line up and say it's the worst thing that's ever happened to us and it's dividing us you know and the 
that instinct in us to seek people like ourselves, whether they're down the road or across the world, is is not good for us because it divides us. Actually, we should just be trying to be part of these mixed, diverse local communities or whatever it is. And then I have other people who say actual identity politics is uh, a really key way of achieving justice for groups that haven't been treated justly in society. And it's very easy to dismiss it when you've yeah. been the beneficiary of, of privilege. And I feel the weight of both of those arguments. As you've talked to a lot of these non-religious young people for whom that identity um, frame is so key, what kind of conclusions have you come to on it? I like the way they are really clear about who they are. I mean, they see it as evasive if you say that, you know, for my generation, if you ask me, who are you? We'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. That's my um, job title. Yeah, but they are really clear. You know, I'm a white, middle-class, privileged, English woman, you know, uh, cisgender, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and you know where you are with someone who knows who they are in a way. So I see them. If you can say who you are and not be evasive, you're, you're more accountable for that identity. And it doesn't necessarily make you hostile to the other identities. I mean, their kind of super ethic is, um, I'm okay, you're okay. And you respect the differences. And you don't pretend to have a universal human oneness, because it's not really real. So do you think there was a kind of 20th century, the kind of aspirational liberal universalism of the mm. sense of we're kind of as we globalise, we'll realise that underneath we're all exactly the same, mm. that we shouldn't hold on to that because it was unrealistic and actually it's em embracing difference that we learn how to get on with each other. I think that that sort of liberal universal, it was actually a very liberal Christian movement that inspired a lot of those humanistic yeah, um, movements. I think it just hasn't worked, to be, to be frank, you know. Give it, it, it had a good run for its money, hasn't really worked, but we do still retain some of that. So um, these young guys would say that um, that's, I mean, they believe in a deep equality and that is grounded in the fact that we're, we're all human beings, but they're also much more open to the non-human in really interesting ways. And um, yeah, I mean, so for all sorts of reasons, I think that that old sort of universal is for humanism hasn't really worked out. We need to get a bit more realistic and pragmatic, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm a sociologist, so I do, we do think about people in terms of those identities. They're natural sociologists, this generation. They're all into intersectional identity, which sociology was talking about. A while back. We're not just humans, are we? We are very specific things formed by our culture and our friends and things over which we have no control. And it, I think it's kind of realistic and human and humble to admit to that. Yeah. Um, let's go back a bit in your career to um, before you were studying non-religion, you were kind of studying the things on the boundary of religion and spirituality, the spiritual revolution that was incredibly seminal work on um, these more kind of ad hoc, less institutional, more diverse and diffuse and dispersed mm. forms of spirituality mm. and um, meaning and belonging. And you uh, did this enormous uh, AHRC, AUSIRC uh, religion society program that culminated in the Westminster faith debates, which is where we met, um, really trying to raise the tenor of the debate about religion in public life. And I remember how inspiring you and Charles were in the sense of this matters, this is central, why is no one talking about it? Mm. Um, I'm really interested in the, almost the social psychology of why it is so hard to talk about religion. What do you think were the kind of 
barriers that you were dealing with and are dealing with in trying to get people to pay proper attention to this thing? I think that there is, uh, you know, a, a secularism uh, baked into academic culture, and that it's perhaps foundational to a lot of the, the um, uh, actually not so much the hard sciences, but the social sciences and some of the humanities, the creative arts, uh, which just you know, symbolically they just see religion as everything they're opposed to about oppression and unfreedom and all the rest of it. And it's a way in which academics and intellectuals can feel they're cleverer than other people at its worst. That's the annoying form. Um, but I, I have to say, I mean, I think there is now an intelligent conversation about religion. That's not a problem. I think there's still a taboo of talking about God and mm. gods and that's the area that now frustrates me. Yeah. That's what I really want to work on for the rest of my career is taking seriously the fact that, I mean, most people do and did and have over the centuries believed that there are supernatural beings that we're in relationship with. Yeah. Good. Yes. I find that, uh, I call it the G-bomb. And mm. it's uh, in our work at Theos, it's really easy for us to be heard on talking in all kinds of around about ways, about, you know, social yeah. capital and communities. And all of these are important things. But whenever I raise actual belief in God, yeah. I can see people's hackles go up. And not just hackles, but it's, a re it's really interesting now watching the instinctive response. And, and what will happen, and it's happened with a few people, is they'll go, oh, I didn't realise you actually believe that bit. You know, that the, the fact that I might actually personally believe in God is astonishes people because mm. they have a certain idea of what someone who believes in God looks like, and I'm not that. Um, but also they'll go, well, of course, you know, by whatever you mean by that. And it, the, the concept, which for me has quite a lot of particularity to it, yeah. will be kind of <laughs> sort of mushed down into the most socially acceptable form in a, you know in a way that's sometimes really well meaning like alcoholics anonymous it's really helpful to say god you know whatever you mean by that but you know we then just end up talking around a blank you know god uh, you know a, 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 an empty container of meaning because in talking about the meaning we immediately get into what I And so my question for you, and this is a working thesis, is I think one of the reasons it's so difficult to talk about God is there is something deep and primal about it. Uh, and the possibility, if you've decided that there probably isn't a God and have come to kind of peace with that, the, the someone else's genuine belief in God, if you let it, can open up the possibility of something that could that has the potential for enormous disappointment. Because for me... The reason lots of people don't believe in God is because of suffering. That again and again is the question, like what, you know, personal suffering, global suffering, that's the question. And so the kind of, if there is a God and this is still happening, what does that mean? So there's almost like the stakes are too high on an individual level to take the lid off the God question. And therefore I try not to do it unless I'm in relationships of real trust. And I almost feel like even bringing it into the conversation, I'm aware of my duty of care to the other person's emotional well-being and all of the possible baggage and history they might have, which is also related mm. to their parents and their attachment and, mm. you know, all of those things. Yeah. So my working hypothesis is not just that people think God is an outdated idea and they've like rationally dismissed it, mm. but it's far more emotionally loaded than we think. Mm. Could you do some research on that for me? Well, yes, certainly. That's really what I want to look at. But um, I have on the whole, not found it hard to talk about God 
um, outside of universities. I mean, when in, in the course of my research, people love talking about God, whether they love or hate God, but and very often gods and ghosts and ancestors and demons and spirits and angels and elves and fairies and you know angels absolutely um, supernatural beings who have a real existence and they talk about them as real and for some they're really important and some they're they're not but they still have had these experiences and I think well how odd that I can study the social functions of religion which of course are important but not look at the sort of empiricity of these pervasive things and that just seems to me like a sort of censorship i'm not saying that you have to believe them or not believe in them but surely you ought to take it seriously and think why it's so widespread and are there commonalities across cultures and in these beliefs and all that sort of stuff we haven't even really got started i think there's a whole void in uh, in scientific inquiry there yeah um i'm going to confess something to you that which is that i was at a conference um the big culminating conference at the end of the Understanding Unbelief program in Rome, uh, which is a big conference on atheism and unbelief, which I learned loads and met loads of people. And we were doing a live sacred um, that will be out at some point. And But it was the first time I encountered this phrase, and I'll forget what it is now, but it was the the acronym for these paranormal, spiritual, superstitious, and something else, PS oh, magic. So it was paranormal, superstitious, magic, and spiritual or something beliefs. And it was the acronym and that various of the researchers were this in a very similar way, this kind of head scratching, the, the kind of the way these beliefs persist. Why do they persist? It must be a, a you know, code switching thing in our cognitive. Yeah, we're neurologically so, hardwired to do this. Thing. Yeah. Or very often it was something happened in childhood that you never grew out of it, which and I was sitting there thinking, I feel massively patronized. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. one, like, don't lump my belief in God in with belief in elves, which then I like had to interrogate in myself. Like, okay, that's your initial reaction. Move. Like, let's just take a breath. Um, but there does seem to be this, this incredible chasm between people in academia and elsewhere who can understand what it might feel like to believe some of those things and people for whom it's literally akin to mental illness and so, something has gone wrong in your brain and that's why you believe it. And... Um, so even as you were talking, I was like, oh, I struggle to put all those things in the same box, but that's just like me being personally defensive. I think it's just as interesting to see the lengths to which people have to go to deny the reality of these things. So those guys that you're getting frustrated with are going to enormous lengths to set up some kind of intellectual framework that enables them to say these things aren't real. Because it's not easy to believe they're not real when so many people around you do have these experiences. So Unbelief is very interesting in its own terms, and what the hard work we have to do to believe that there aren't we're not in relationship with a god or gods. Mm. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that next phase of your research. Keep, keep, just keep provoking people. I, I do it more and more. So if I'm if you're from a conference and they're looking at you, why is there a correlation between being religious and and being happier or having better health outcomes? I say, well, maybe maybe the gods are helping these people and not those people. It's just fun to provoke people yeah. <laughs> to consider the, consider another hypothesis. Yeah. At least consider it. I'm, I'm glad you're there and making people consider hypotheses. Hypothe- new hypotheses. hypotheses. Yes. Um, so I'm going to finish on the uh, question that I ask a lot of people, which is about what you've learnt in engaging across difference. So perhaps through all your kind of travails with the church, what has worked when you're trying to get people from different tribes or different positions um, to engage with each other 
you know, properly and humanly. Um, and uh, so that's maybe around the church. And then perhaps in, in public conversations, when you, through your experience of the West, Westminster faith debates, and you're trying to get people in public to talk about religion better, what have you learned? What are your tips? Well, I think that fundamental disagreement is always tied up with power and your your empowerment or disempowerment. And um, well, there, there are two things that can make people extremely angry. One is if you have power, and that's kind of an entitled, unquestioned, and then people start to question it. Um, I mean, like a Brexit vote overturning the orthodoxy that that the EU is great. That makes those people angry in a certain way. And then there's, then there's the other side of it where people feel that they have not been listened to, taken seriously, they've been disadvantaged for a very, very long time. And that leads to another sort of anger. So in the current Brexit debate, you've got those two sorts of anger for very different reasons. One from people being more powerful and the other people who feel disempowered. And it's, it's provoked the, both the things that make people most angry. So um, how do you move forward? You have to recognise the basic human needs and um, empowerments on both sides and what each side stands to gain or lose. So I get really impatient with these sort of reconciliation talks where you just sit at a table and talk about your different beliefs because it's never going to the heart of why this you've got so much at stake in this. Mm. Linda Woodhead, thank you so much for talking to me on The Secret. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast we're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.